Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. And I'm Caleb Meyer. Today we are getting into some serious monkey business. Monkey business that clocks into the tune of $800 million. The Planet of the Apes franchise has captivated audiences since 1968. A major draw of the franchise? Charlton Heston. Well, yes, initially, but through the years, the Planet of the Apes has wowed audiences with... The special effects. Exactly. behind the effects that brought the apes to life in the movies is called Weta Digital. Weta was founded back in 1993 by Peter Jackson, Richard Taylor, and Jamie Selkirk to work on the special effects for Peter Jackson's movie Heavenly Creatures. And while Peter Jackson retains some ownership of the company and the early career of Weta closely follows Jackson's own, they have since branched out to become the premier visual effects studio. And though you may not have heard the name of Weta before, I guarantee that every person knows at least one movie they've worked on. They have been a part of 91 movies and TV shows since their inception, and their resume reads like a top blockbuster list of the past two decades. The Lord of the Rings, Avatar, the X-Men movies, the MCU, DC films as well, Godzilla, Deadpool, Krampus, District 9, The Hunger Games, The Umbrella Academy, and the final two seasons of Game of Thrones. They are the big dogs in the special effects world. Weta has won six Academy Awards for Best Visual Effects, ten Academy Science and Technology Awards, six BAFTA Awards for Best Special Visual Effects, seven VES Awards, Visual Effects Society, for Outstanding Visual Effects in a Photoreal Feature, and two Emmy Awards for Outstanding Special Visual Effects. These guys made Gollum, King Kong, Smaug, Pandora, Godzilla, The Merc with a Mouth, and Thanos come to life. And, of course, Caesar. Now, aside from Peter Jackson and their own employees, there is one other name that keeps coming up alongside Weta. Gollum! Gollum! Andy Serkis. Andy Serkis is hands down the name you think of when you think of performance capture acting. He played Gollum, King Kong, Caesar, Snoke, and in 2018 took a turn directing a film featuring a lot of CGI acting, Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle. Now, Circus is no stranger to transformative performances. He made his way up in acting from the stage in London, where, in addition to appearing in Shakespeare and Brecht, he performed in a role in a play called Dog Boy, where his character would run around the stage pretending to be a dog. Later in his career, he'd switch out those canine instincts for some simian ones. When Caleb and I were preparing this episode, Caleb found a quote from Andy Circus on playing Caesar that lends some perspective. It's very rare as an actor to get the opportunity to play a character all the way through from birth to death. In effect, and not only that, it's a character that's evolving. It's an amazing journey for the character, so I think that's the one that really ultimately means the most to me. That's so cool. And that's a unique experience. I'm going to go in two very different directions here. 
But you have a movie like Aquaman that for showing Arthur Curry's growth and development in flashback as he becomes a superhero, casts six actors in addition to Jason Momoa to cover everything. Or you can have a production like Hamilton, where a single actor can play a character from the beginning to the end of a story, but a musical lets you take certain liberties and it's easier to age someone up when Alexander Hamilton died in his late 40s. Bringing a character to life from their birth and playing them until their death, that's really only possible in the truest sense through performance capture technology. The way nearly all performance capture acting is done now is you put the actor in a gray suit with capture dots called markers, placed at the joints and moving key parts of the body. An actor's face is also covered in these markers to capture the facial expressions and movements, such as the straining of the cheek muscles or the tilt of an eyebrow. The markers on the suit are captured by specialized cameras, while the markers on the face are captured by head-mounted cameras the actors wear which are pointed towards their own face. Now might also be a good time to emphasize that as we heap praise on Andy Serkis, the teams that model and animate the finished product are just incredible. I mean, studying post-production audio in college, I realized how many engineers you need to design the sound for a film. For animation, take that number of people and then multiply it by 5, 10, or a few dozen. Oh, there's hundreds of visual effects artists that worked on all of these films, and they're all layering over a single performance, most notably from Circus. We watched an interview he did on The Graham Norton Show in 2017 to promote War of the Planet of the Apes. Circus showed there's still an intensely physical side to it, using metal arm extensions and then learning to walk and move like an ape. He also wore weights on his wrists and ankles as Caesar so that he could realistically portray the tension and low center of gravity in the chimp's body. He only had the arm extenders for the media tour, but he emulated the walk perfectly, and you could see how strong the performance was that the animators had to work with. Tom Holland was also on the show at the same time and tried to walk with the arm extenders. Not quite as easy as Circus made it look. I seem to recall Holland mentioned he wished he had been wearing looser pants. Or trousers, as they say. The walk is the foundation and really only part of the foundation. In an interview, Andy Serkis said, So many people think studying the role for Caesar is purely about copying ape movements, but that's really Room 101. That's where you begin. After a while, you realize it's not just about mimicking behavior. This is about creating a character. It's not just about the physical build of a character, but the whole internalization. As the audience, we still have to buy the performance. The technology can't trick us if the actor or actress didn't get us there in the first place. And Circus finishes, the greatest mystery about performance capture is that there is no mystery. It's just the same as acting. All acting is about suspension of disbelief, and it's about playing the real emotion of a scene. You and I both learned a lot from Jane Martin at the University of St. Francis, and in any kind of production or art, she talked about how we should think about how we're making the audience feel. What reaction does this performance get from those who see it and experience it? When we watched the trilogy, I know you said that Rise being the earliest film was probably the weakest of the three. But there's some emotional elements there that just hit you. In Dawn and War, we see Caesar's desire for neutrality and vengeance. He feels more like Don Corleone or Professor X. Rise gives us a Superman origin story. We see Caesar from birth. We get a montage of scenes as he gets older, and eventually Caesar gets to see the lab where he was born. Kind of mirrors the emotions you might get from a young Clark Kent being told he's from Krypton. When he gets taken later, we feel the whole spectrum of emotions. Our first time watching the films together was your first time seeing them. How do you think Rise stacked up compared to the other two? In terms of emotional beats, it, it's right there. The constant of Andy Serkis' performance provides a constant baseline. In terms of the realism of the CGI, the first movie does an amazing job considering it has to make the apes look realistic in familiar environments. The second two films kind of get that advantage of post-apocalyptic settings, so everything looks different and you notice fewer incongruities with the apes. There's also fewer to catch, even if you're looking for them. And really the only big moments where we fall into the uncanny valley are the fault of the camera movement, not the realism of the model. 
intense zooming in or out on the eyes or pulling off shots in a way that animation allows, but are dead giveaways. When we watch the movies, you compare the plot line to the first three George Romero zombie films as humanity falls. But let's stay with a couple items we've hit on. First, the emotional performance from Circus. I remember when I was 10 or 11 years old and seeing King Kong when it came out in theaters in 2005. And obviously at that point, we were all familiar with Circus's performance as Gollum. So then seeing him bringing the King Kong performance to life, okay, similar technology being used, but grab the upper left-hand corner and drag, and you have a character that's easily 50 times as big as Gollum. (laughs) And they had to get creative in production. They had a camera on Naomi Watts, and then they gave Circus a handheld monitor so that he could act against her performance while also moving like he was carrying her. And part of the challenge of the Planet of the Apes films was they're always acting alongside people who are in the gray motion capture suits like they were, so getting into the headspace of seeing everyone as apes was difficult. Circus also said that the final scene with the colonel in the last movie was the hardest to shoot, and to get the emotions just right. Going through the range of emotions of feeling anger, pity, and the eventual realization that his quest for revenge had no purpose now, all had to play out just in his facial expressions and eyes. And the technology had to capture and correctly translate all of that to the screen. So Circus has gotten to take this journey along with performance capture technology. How has it developed as he's been involved in more and more projects that it's been used? Say what you will about the Hobbit trilogy. That gives us nearly a decade between Gollum appearances. From doing Gollum in 2003 to Gollum in 2012, what it was able to make the skin appear more translucent, able to get the light to reflect off the eyeballs and the dilation of pupils more realistic. Performance capture has a long history to get it where it is today, and it can be called back to the animation technique of rotoscoping, in which they would film a human and then have an artist trace over the movements of that person. Incidentally, a movie that heavily used rotoscoping was Ralph Batchke's Lord of the Rings. Once again, we see Lord of the Rings as a key component in this idea of capturing an actor's performance and enhancing it. Wedda's is about page sums it up nicely. Quote, led by senior visual effects supervisor Joe Lettery, Wedda Digital is known for its culture of creativity and innovation. From Gollum to Caesar, Middle-earth to Pandora, the studio has created some of the most memorable characters and worlds of the last 25 years. The Planet of the Apes movies have been instrumental in shaping performance capture technology. Rise was one of the first movies where they were able to take the performance capture rigs and shoot on interior sets with them, and the regular human cast for the Golden Gate Bridge scene. They built a set bridge and had over 200 motion capture cameras placed around the set to capture the movements of the actors. The markers used on capture suits used to be retroflective, but were upgraded to send out an infrared pulse so they could be used in outside bright light. And thinking back to Circus's performance of King Kong in 05 up to Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the technology got so much better. When the apes are captured at the beginning of Rise, you're outdoors, and it's so easy to forget that the apes you were watching get captured are not real. The technology got that much better. You were pulled in and you buy in from the first moments of the film. Exactly. And for Dawn, they were able to take the rigs out into the real-world conditions for exterior shoots. They were able to shoot in the Vancouver rainforests and in New Orleans in 100% humidity. For War, they were even able to go shoot in knee-deep snow, negative-degree weather, and even during the night. And for each subsequent movie, we talked about the technology way less. By War, it's done at such a high level that you can just sit back and enjoy the epic story that's unfolding. And that was one of my favorite takeaways from watching these films— I went in knowing that you and I were planning to critique the technology, but also wound up watching three really well-put-together movies. And we would be very remiss to not talk about the other fantastic elements of these movies. The other incredible performances, not from someone named Andy Serkis, the fantastic scores, and the wonderful direction. Well, let's start with the first entry. I mean, you have John Lithgow, James Franco, 
giving us that father-son dynamic right out of the gate. And every human character gets one movie. You do not have a ton of time to show the audience who you are and just take the part and run. And that's a trend that we definitely see play out across the films later on. Especially James Franco's character. I mean, he's only in the first movie, but the impact of him being Caesar's father figure and basically real father, probably aside from his own family, has the biggest impact on Caesar. Like he teaches him what it means to be human. And that's like the whole theme of the rest of the movies is these apes are people. They're human. If Rodman is the inspiring example that gets these incredible character moments out of Caesar early in the film, once he's turned over and is imprisoned and you have Brian Cox and Tom Felton, Tom Felton especially, just being relentlessly cruel to Caesar and the other apes that are imprisoned there. I'm going to quote Robert McKee from his work story where he says, true character is revealed in the choices a human being, or in this case, an ape, makes under pressure. The greater the pressure, the deeper the revelation, the truer the choice to the character's essential nature. And as Caesar eventually finds a way out, and the fact that his first word is just a guttural, no, that moment of finally replying to the extreme pressure and meeting Tom Felton and kind, that moment of extreme pressure, that buildup gets a Caesar, the monkeys escape, and we're set up for our third act. And that holds true even in the second movie. That quote made me think of the characters in the second movie, that like family of humans they reveal who they are under stress, and that's part of why Caesar can still see some good in people. And that's very true of the way the dynamics play out in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which is so telling just from the title, because uh, going back to that whole comparison of the Planet of the Apes movies, the most recent trilogy, comparing them to the Romero zombie films, you have Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and you have Rise dawn in the middle once again and then war and we find humanity in a similar spot in dawn of the planet of the apes as we do kind of between dawn and day of the dead and that at that point it's a zombie majority the major cities have fallen and everyone that has survived is dealing with a new normal and not handling it particularly well we see that not just with carrie russell and jason clark who you alluded to but also Gary Oldman as Dreyfus. It's a cool performance to see Gary Oldman in, because it's a lot more subdued than a lot of his performances. It reminds me of his Commissioner Gordon a lot, actually. It's very similar. I guess they would have been filmed around the same time, too, but as opposed to something like his performance in Fifth Element that is so over the top, this was a lot more grounded, which is really interesting in a series where you have hyper-realistic CGI apes. And we still have this grounded Commissioner Gordon-esque performance completely acting out of desperation in the second film. Which creates an interesting parallel because it's it's a direct result of man's actions that they are in this state of desperation because the whole first movie is about man trying to play God and create these drugs that change brain chemistry and just, you know, completely go against the natural order of things, which is very similar Funnily enough, to the Jurassic Park movies, there is the very obvious theme of man playing God and bringing things that are extinct back to life. And there's a direct parallel between Sam Neill's character of Dr. Grant and James Franco's character of Dr. Rodman. They both hold the view that these animals have an intrinsic value. And James Franco takes that one step further because Caesar is so intelligent. He 
becomes his own son. Grant, on the other hand, has this view that, okay, we brought these animals back to life. They have value. They deserve to live out their natural lifespan without us coming in and playing God and manipulating them. And Grant is a more purely motivated character. Yes. Because in Jurassic Park, the biggest follow-up of the whole operation is decisions made in the pursuit of capitalism. We're going to make as much money with this theme park as we possibly can. And you get the human family dynamics through Dr. Rodman that motivates so many of his decisions. And you can, as an audience, understand why he would do some of the things that he's doing. And that that's fundamental. We never feel like, oh, under pressure, we would not make the same decisions that Rodman does. We're with him the whole way. Yeah, but, I mean, his actions have consequences. And you could make the argument that testing a drug on his father before it's approved for human trials is morally wrong. And it had disastrous results. In the third movie, we get to the point where humans are losing intelligence. So the irony of him creating this drug to restore his father's intelligence, restore his brain function, mutates into this thing that destroys the magnificence of the human brain and destroys the last vestiges of humanity that are left which again making comparisons to the romero zombie films day of the dead is all about militarism and that's all that's left of humanity by the time the dust is settled and we get to war of the planet of the apes though one other theme as we again kind of bounce around the trilogy the way koba essentially starts a war in dawn of the planet of the apes is so well executed I don't know if they plan to have this imagery, but it's very similar to like Nazi speeches and rallies, the us against them mentality and being able to so easily scapegoat humans and pretend that they murdered Caesar and then goes and commits horrible crimes against the humans and puts them in cages just like he was put in a cage. And goes along with other points that I know we made uh, talking about uh, the Joker episode and just everything that you can get away with in a post 9-11 world. What are we willing to do as a society and what are we willing to compromise on? That movie pulls at those ideas in just the right ways. And we got to talk about Matt Reeves' direction. I mean, he did the last two movies and it's so masterfully done. I mean, some of those shots where you just have the apes hurting these humans in these mass exodus lines. Wonderful. Also the finale on the tower. That gives me all the hope in the world for the Batman movie that Matt Reeves is now directing. Yeah. And the tank shot. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the tank shot where it's the single take just on the barrel of the tank as it breaks through the walls into the human compound. Oh, it's so good. The only other thing that I want to highlight again, being the audio guy, would be the music and the scores for these films. In the first movie, when I was watching it with you as the apes were escaping from the zoo, I heard a motif in the way it was structured and immediately just thought to myself, that's from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Is it the same? And then doing research. Yep. Same composer. Patrick Doyle does a wonderful job with this movie. But then the music doesn't evolve too much, not as much as the primary characters do, as we go into the next couple of films. And part of why you still get something that's built really well on the foundation that Doyle laid in the first film is because we get Michael Giacchino coming in, who has a history of succeeding what has come before, whether that be with new Star Trek films, new Star Wars movies. He's also done work for the MCU. His resume is just absolutely insane and has such an, a wide range to it. But one thing about composers of music for film is that ultimately, if you're doing your job well, no one will know. The music is just another element that helps to 
create the whole emotion of the scene and get the response from the audience that you're looking for. And it's usually the last piece that gets added. And that's exactly like the production work. The hyper-realistic CGI, if it's done well, no one knows you're doing it, just like those composers. The results are seamless, and considering how far along they've come with this CGI in just an 18-20 to year window, it's going to be crazy to see how far this technology goes in the next 20 years. Then we also have to consider what can be done with realistic digital technology and deepfakes. And that's a whole nother episode. So, a fair warning, this next storytelling spotlight was recorded before the coronavirus pandemic, and there's a few observations that haven't aged well. Also, we'll be quoting from an HBO show here. There is one swear word in the mix, so just keep that in mind if you have kids around. So we're starting off our spotlight portion for this episode of Storytelling Breakdown. Pause this episode in a moment, because I need you to go to YouTube, not YouTube, ads, Spotify, wherever you most regularly listen to music, go there and listen to Straight Up and Down by Brian Jones' Town Massacre. We need to set the vibe a little bit. I'll still be here in five minutes, at which point you can play the episode and we'll carry on with our spotlight. So we're already between a third and halfway through 2020. But I want to think back to ringing in the new year, beginning the new Roaring Twenties, Friends of ours dressed as flappers and broke out suits, caps, and accessories necessary to pull off the 1920s chic. It was impossible to ring in this decade without looking back 100 years. And one of my favorite TV shows starts out on New Year's Eve 1919 as Prohibition goes into effect. Ladies and gentlemen, Boardwalk Empire. I love the whole show. I really love the first three seasons of it. And I was just captivated the first time I watched season one, episode one of Boardwalk Empire. That's our spotlight for today. The costumes, the set design, the setup of the characters drop you into the era and you feel like you're really there. Spoilers for that first episode ahead, of course. Now, I just went back through the show with the wife and it was amazing to watch just how many characters you see in the first episode that are in it for the long haul. An effort not to spoil the whole series, I won't name them all, but so many character arcs that tangle with one another all get their start in this episode. We open on a foggy night with crates of illegal alcohol being unloaded off the coast of Atlantic City. The cars that take the crates run into an ambush in the woods, and we're pulled in. And then we meet Nucky Thompson, played by Steve Buscemi, nominated for two Emmys for the role as well. And Thompson is speaking at a meeting of the Temperance League. He's a politician, the county treasurer pulling strings and trying to get the women who will soon have the right to vote into the camp of the Republican Party. When asked about how true some of what he said at the podium was, Nucky replies, Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. That line, on so many levels, summarizes how Nucky operates and how the show's creators operate. And this first episode was directed by Martin Scorsese. He will come up again on this podcast very soon, I'm sure. He might be one of my favorite people ever. And he should come up. That relationship between the truth and story, writer Terrence Winter did an amazing job with it. Are many of the historical elements there? Yes. But there are some cinematic liberties taken. 
Nucky Thompson is based off of a gangster named Nucky Johnson, who did exist, but Nucky Thompson's story is its own. Other characters based off of real people emerge, including my favorite, Arnold Rosting. <laughs> oh, yes. Michael Stuhlbarg is an incredible character actor, and the Jewish New York mob boss is played just perfectly. Stolbarg embodied him so fully and did so much research for the role that eventually writers and directors for the show were deferring to him on how Rothstein would behave. Now, with those two major pieces in play, Nucky and Rothstein, let's go back to why New Year's Day 2020 made me think of this episode. Eventually, we arrive at a New Year's Eve party at Bobette's Supper Club. The party is an absolute showstopper. Eventually, we are introduced to Eddie Cantor, who will be an entertainer that features heavily throughout Boardwalk Empire. Minor spoiler there, though as far as major plot elements go, Eddie's not overly essential to the plot. However, he is essential to just bringing you into that world. He is the quintessential entertainer of the day, a brilliant vocalist and comedian, and you have lavish surroundings, a massive party going on with the jazz music and everything just accurate to the day. The costumes, especially in this first episode, every extra is just dressed to the nines, the one nine, two zeros, and it is just fantastic. There's a funeral for John Barleycorn. They are carrying out literally this giant fake bottle of alcohol out like it's a funeral procession. There are people dressed as a minstrel band playing along as they go. And you meet all sorts of characters, many of whom, uh, as far as the women go, are in classic flapper fare. And then we go upstairs. Above the main room of the supper club, there is a private table that has Nucky and many honored guests assembled, where he is already planning on how to capitalize on Prohibition. Uh, the line that sums it up pretty much perfectly is where he says, In less than two hours, liquor will be declared illegal by decree of the distinguished gentlemen of our nation's Congress. To those beautiful, ignorant bastards! And they carry on from there. There's discussion of who's going to run the different wards throughout the city, how all the money is going to flow to Nucky and his seat of being the treasurer. And you get to see all the different elements playing in, people who are perhaps upset that they have been passed over for a promotion, and someone who's going to be helping the cogs all run smoothly, as Nucky's brother, Eli, is the sheriff in charge of law enforcement for their community. We move on to already a major deal being put into play to try to get alcohol for a wedding for another mob boss. And that, of course, is Arnold Rothstein visiting from New York. And we get a dinner scene at a hotel. I would put this scene up there as far as characters sharing a meal and developing and having this first meeting and interaction. Here's another one we're going to have a podcast episode later on, I'm sure. The coffee diner scene in the movie Heat. The first interactions between two characters being iconic. And going back and seeing that table with Nucky Thompson, Arnold Rothstein... His right-hand man, Lucky Luciano, Johnny Torrio from Chicago brokering the meeting, along with Big Jim Colosimo, also from Chicago. That first interaction tells you so much about those men who are going to be pulling strings for many episodes and many hours of entertainment to come. And it is just so well done. Rothstein carries himself with grace and makes it very clear what his expectations are. Nucky is trying to be the gracious host. Torrio is perhaps... Going on a little long, and that is pointed out by uh, the fact that uh, Lucky Luciano is young, impulsive, and a bit rude. And Big Jim Colosimo is not the most fluent in English, but is more than willing to offer what he can to the meeting. And things play out from there. And of course, yes, it is that same convoy of trucks that was stopped at the beginning of the episode. That set up 
gives us the conflict that just keeps going. The conflict boils over from there. And again, I don't want to mention all the name characters that we will see later on because I don't want to give you a sense of just how important everybody is. And the episode ends with Nucky in the hospital visiting a widow whose husband has been blamed for the robbery of the trucks that we saw at the beginning of the film. There is so much to love about Boardwalk Empire. There are, again, people I haven't mentioned that when you watch the episode, you'll go, oh, they're in this story. Uh, specifically an interaction between two characters who are forced to wait outside while the meeting at the hotel is going on, and you realize, huh, so he started out as Johnny Torrio's driver. 10 out of 10, would recommend Boardwalk Empire, and it just hooks you. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahovsky joins us as our producer. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. SP Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>